Father, there's so much to see from the church in the first century, so much to learn. We would ask that you would help us to take the lessons to heart that the Apostle Paul teaches in this epistle that he has given to us. And we know that you took him by the nap of the neck and called him to be your apostle. And he was so stubborn, Lord, but you changed his heart. We had asked that you would do the same for us as we go through this epistle he authored. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of you will not remember this, and some will. In 1973, there was a production that was made for the theaters. It was called Godspell. In Godspell, there was a song that was sung day by day by the fifth dimension. You guys remember the fifth dimension going back? And this, what they sing in there is actually coming from a prayer by Richard of Chichester. And he wrote, To know Jesus more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to follow him more nearly. Now they changed the first phrase in that. They wanted to say, to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, and to follow thee more nearly. And I, I went back and I listened to it as I was thinking of this. And it was, you know, it's quite the song. And a lot of the songs in that Godspell, I can't speak for the whole movie, but a lot of the songs were like, wow, this is pretty good. Not so much for maybe hair and the other ones that were around at that time. But anyhow, that is the reason that we are going through the scriptures. That's why we go from book to book. It is not just simply a topic that comes up. And there's a time and place for topics, but we want to go through the Bible book by book, one by one, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so we get the whole counsel of God. Not just a smattering of things that might be relevant for us today, but we don't get the background information on the why or the meaning which is there. And if we go through the whole counsel of God, we get that meaning. Now, in the first century church, when we look back at the church, some people say, we need to go back to what the first century church was and how God had blessed it and he had multiplied it. You know, in the church today, do we have problems in the church today? I would say we do. Uh, not this church. I'm talking about the church universally. We have a lot of problems. Lack of insight into spiritual matters, why things happen, why they're taking place, misinterpretation of Scripture. I've seen so much of this in the last year. I, I, it's hard for me to fathom how many people misunderstand the Scriptures. Also, greed inside the church. Have you noticed that there's a little bit of greed in some sectors of the Christian church? Licentiousness or immorality is just rampant in the church because as the culture kind of degradates itself into that, well, the church is being drugged into that immorality. And there's infighting and division. Uh, you know, church splits have been something that have been around since the dawning of the church. Now, that's the church today. And people say, well, let's go back to the first century church. Well, in Corinthians, or in the book of Corinthians, the Corinth church, there was boasting, there was division, there was sexual immorality, lawsuits among believers, problems in marriage and with divorce and remarriage, dietary restrictions imposed by weak believers, infighting, the Lord's Supper being misused, roles of the women and the men being confused, gifts of the Spirit being abused, how to love 
uh, how love is supposed to be preeminent for us. The clarification on doctrine takes place throughout the book. Then there's the gospel and the resurrection, how it is spelled out, because apparently they might be a little bit confused about that. And the encouragement to be separate from evil associations, which were relevant for them because they were in Corinth. Now, Corinth for us is Greece. That's where they were. And the church in Corinth was on a little isthmus. That's what they call it, like a little island that is out there. But that's where the church grew up. And Paul, through all of this letter, he's treating them as little children. He's treating them as infants. Now, this is the second of four letters that would be written to the church in Corinth. He wrote one, or they wrote one to him from the house of Chloe, which we'll get to in a minute. And there were some concerns because there were divisions among the people. There was kind of some infighting going on. Then 2 Corinthians is the response that Corinth got. And then there was another letter that he wrote that was really kind of a harsh letter. We don't have that letter. We might have some inserts in 2 Corinthians dealing with that letter. And then there's the final letter, which is written. So we only have two of the letters that were going back and forth of the four. And this idea that there were problems inside the church, every single church has problems. Every church. I don't care if it's big or if it's small. Uh, there is a couple of books by Gene Edwards. One of them is How to Prevent a Church Split, and the other one is The Tale of Three Kings. Excellent uh, books for anybody who would be going into ministry. And in the uh, book, How to Prevent a Church Split, there was one case, I've mentioned this one before, where the deacons got together and they were going to assassinate the pastor because they didn't like him. And that's an actual, there's an actual case. Another one was the color of the roof. There was a church split over the color of the roof. And it, when we started the church there was an argument over who's going to set up the coffee. And one time the guy who was supposed to set up the chairs, he, he wasn't there. He had overslept. And so I set up the chairs and he came to me. And basically, metaphorically, he grabbed my shirt and said, that's my job. <laughs> Show up then. You know, if, it, if it's your job, that's what I was thinking on the inside. And I said, well, I'm sorry, brother. I was trying to be real nice and congenial. But there are problems in every church. And these problems, they never seem to go away. Why? Because you always have infants come into the church. And you always have mature believers that kind of slide back into the old habits. And so there's always going to be some type of problem, big or small. And Paul was fighting to keep the church together. Now, in Corinth there, there was the temple to Ashtart, the temple to Aphrodite the sex goddess and the way that she looked she she had arms some of them have more than uh, one set of arms but breasts there were several layers of breasts on her chest and that was the idol that they would sell there and of course paul because of the preaching that uh, business started to taper off as well as in ephesus and and so there were some problems with that but these problems are always going to be around. The problem of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, talking about what we have done or what we have accomplished, patting ourselves on the back, that's always going to be there. And also, we're going to pick out favorites. And that's how the book begins, is they start 
picking out favorites, and then because of that, there's some divisions that take place inside the church. Now, as far as a church being in infancy, you have to gauge for yourself whether you are mature or if you are immature. Things that make somebody mature or the habits in which they are involved in. If they're constantly in the word. Now, I'm not going to say, if you're not in it every day, you're not mature. No, you're just slacking. It doesn't mean you're not mature. It's just a slack on our part when we have a tendency to do that. But there will always be toddlers inside the church. Now, my daughter, not not my daughter, my granddaughter, exposed me to a... uh, the Living Ch- the Life Channel or something like that, there's a show on there called Outdaughtered. Now, the show Outdaughtered has girls, six of them, five of them are quintuplets. And, you know, like twins, but there's five of them. And you see the husband and you see the wife and the whole show is about them getting along and teaching them. Like, for instance, they had this timeout chair that you sat in the timeout chair if you were bad. They started fighting over who gets to sit in the timeout chair. <laughs> and then after that, one of the, the little girls, she was just standing there looking to her sister, and the father's trying to encourage her. Now, say, you're sorry, be nice. And she's just looking with this scowl with her head down, and she has something in her hand. I think it's a stuffed animal or something. And she just smacks the other one upside the head. (laughs) Didn't say she was sorry or anything else. And I'm going, that's us. You know, we we operate the same way. There's always infants inside the church, always mature believers that fall back into a pattern, you know, of the old flesh. And so that's what we're dealing with. So that's why this is relevant for us. If you consider yourself mature, great. But we still suffer under the same temptations being offended. That's a big one for mature believers. They can be offended and then they won't talk about it because they're mature and it just roils on the inside and eventually it just kind of oozes out somewhere by something that they end up saying. So what about this letter? Who was this letter written to and why was it written? Well, of course, I just described to you the city which was there and there were retired Roman generals that Caesar said, you guys go live there, set up commerce and it was a big trade area. You know, like between uh, California and the Far East, Japan and China. What's the way station between the two places? It would be Hawaii. You know, people want to stop in Hawaii and go over. Now, they don't have to do that, but that's like a way station. You could stop there and take a couple of days and then go on from there. Well, that's what the city of Corinth was like. On the trade routes, people would come in there and then they would leave. And so they were well-renowned. You know, they have the uh, Ricardo Montalban, you know him? Uh, Fine Corinthian leather, you know, that type of thing. But it was also a phrase back then, stop acting like a Corinthian. Why? Because you'd be carousing, you would be debauched, you would be engaged in behavior that you really shouldn't be involved in. And so that was a, a, a slur on somebody who was not acting properly or morally. Uh, the people of the church of Corinth, there were Greeks, there were Jews, there were Italians, there were Asians who were there. And I, of course, I told you there is the temple to Aphrodite. And a letter was written, as I just mentioned, the first letter, from the household of Chloe, 
And the letter was sent to let Paul know about the divisions that were going on. And they also had questions later about practical doctrinal practice. You get to chapter 7 and it deals with marriage. It deals with divorce and it deals with remarriage. And what if somebody gets saved inside of a marriage and the other one doesn't want to get saved, doesn't want to be a believer, but one does and one doesn't? Shouldn't they separate? Because, you know, after all, it's light and darkness dwelling together, which kind of makes sense. You think, well, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Scripture even says that. And so they ask that question, what should we do? Should we separate? Should we not separate? What's the deal with that? And what about remarriage? Can we get remarried once we do separate? If the unbeliever doesn't want to be with the believer and they take off, are you free to remarry? Are you not free to remarry? And so they had some you know, vital questions that were for them because the whole culture was being changed by the doctrine that Paul was bringing to the church in Corinth. Now, in the, by the chapters that we have, in the scriptures here, in 1 Corinthians, we have divisions in the church, chapter 1 through 3. We have, uh, I call it the apostles chapter, chapter 4. Sexual immorality is dealt with in chapters 5 and 6. Lawsuits among believers in chapter 6. Marriage and divorce and remarriage, chapter 7. Food sacrifice to idols, chapter 8. The Lord's Supper and Worship, chapter 11. And it also has this women's lib movement that is in there in chapter 11. And it talks about the man's head being covered in long hair and short hair. And can a man have long hair? And does a woman have to cover her head? And there's all kinds of problems with that that they were experiencing. And then there's the love chapter, chapter 13. And the gifts chapters, chapter 12 and 14. And the resurrection chapter, chapter Chapter 15. And you can go through the whole book and wow, this is a lot of basic information doctrine. It's kind of like uh, not the pastoral epistles, but uh, good Christians eat pork, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Those uh, books, you go through those books and it's just solid, practical, everyday living. But this was a church in its infancy. And so there were a lot of problems. And Paul is kind of acting like uh, the kid in front of the whack-a-mole. You know, he's taking that, that mallet that's all uh, covered in like a, a leather, and the moles pop up, and he whacks that mole down. And as quick as they pop up, he's whacking those things down. And so that's what he's doing, going back and forth. And there is one time that which we will see that Paul went back and reprimanded them. He rebuked them. And we don't have that letter, but he was very, very stern. And that's not the case in this letter. He affirms his love for them. And when Paul was in Ephesus, Paul was writing this letter. And do you guys know who the pastor of Ephesus was? It was Timothy. So he was going kind of back and forth with Timothy, and then there was Apollos, and uh, we have Aquila and Priscilla. We have all these different characters that are revealed to us. Uh, specifically in 1 Corinthians. Now, the letter was written specifically in response to the church's actions that were taking place and also in action. Uh, 1 Corinthians, I'll just read it real fast. Chapter 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And so that's why he's responding to the first letter, we're given the information right there. And by the way, if you pay attention as we go through the letter, what he responds to, the direction he gives them, you can get the implied question, or even inferred, but you can get that implied question that they're asking based on 
his answers, that the direction that he's given them, saying, you know, this is how you're to conduct yourself in marriage or towards a virgin that you're pledged to. And you know they're asking the question, but you don't have the question because that's in the prior letter. So going on here, I already told you that there were four letters, but he made three visits to this place. And one of the visits, he spent a year and a half there. That's a long time. That's a long time for the apostle to stay there. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, it tells us about the letter. He says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. We don't have that uh, letter that was written, the harsh one that was going back to them. And so we have those four letters, the three visits, and one hurried visit. It, it's referred to or alluded to in Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, 12, 14, and 13, 1 through 2, that he went there in a hurried fashion because there was some type of crisis. He went there, he took care of it, he left, and he, he made the total of the three trips. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14 tells us that. He says, now I am ready to visit you for the third time. So he's just checking on them, making sure they're okay. And of course, small children need a lot of attention. Could you imagine putting 30 toddlers in a room with one adult? What, what would you have? You would have mayhem. The kids would be crying. Diapers would be off. I mean, there would, there would just be problems all over the place. And so you need to be there, you need to have eagle eyes, you need to be watching and listening for everything that's going on and providing correction. So that's, that's how we set it up for 1 Corinthians. There were some good people that were there, but for the most part, the church was completely carnal. They, they knew they got saved, and that's great, and Paul goes, it's wonderful, you guys are saved, I rejoice over you, you, you know, you are my glory, the, the thing that has been given birth, and, and it speaks of God's power working through me to bring you to him, and, and, and it's just wonderful, but then he starts laying into it, but when he lays into it, it's not like, it's not like Galatians, you know, when he was talking to the church in Corinth, he basically gives his approval. I'm happy you're saved. This is wonderful. May you be encouraged. And in Galatians, by the way, just as a side note, 11 of the books that Paul has authored, I believe he probably authored 13 of them, but in 11 of them, he has a phrase that he uses all the time. And I remember in seminary, they gave us this book, and it gave us a book of all the letters that would have been written around the time of uh, the first century church. And the letters are just like Paul. Like, how do we start a letter? We say, dear, and you follow in with the name. Uh, and then after that, there's usually a comma, a space, and you write out what's going on. That's our common way to write a letter. Well, his was, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. So it's grace and peace to you. Now, to Timothy, it was grace, mercy, and peace. Why to Timothy? He was a young pastor and a church that was in its infancy. The same thing was going on in Ephesus that was going on in the church of Corinth. All these churches are brand new. They didn't have hundreds of years or even thousands of years of referrals to go back to. Well, this is what they did in the past. They didn't have any of that, so it's all brand new for them. But in Galatians, 
you know, he gives this nice opening, and then it's like he pulls out the sword. He says, I am astonished that you would so quickly desert the one who called you by the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel. He just says, hi, it's so nice to meet you. Now what are you doing? He's just like yelling at them, and this word astonished, it's a sudden overpowering surprise and wonder, like, I am dumbfounded that you would do this. That's the only book that Paul does that. Everywhere else, it's grace and peace. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you here. But he just laid into the Corinthian church, or excuse me, the Galatian church. And so we're going to pick it up. We're going to see how this works out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. He introduces himself, and this is how the letters of the day were written. You would say who you are and who you're addressing and give them a blessing. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ and called to be holy together with all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You see how wonderful it is. It's so great, the fellowship that we share. Verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. So he's just lauding it on them. You are so loved. You are a wonderful church here. He goes on to say, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await or eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. So again, it's grace and peace. And you've heard this if you've been around for a while. You don't have any peace without the grace of God. The grace must come first. That salvation must come first. Then you have the peace. People who don't know God, especially at the end of life, they become very unsettled, very worried. Most all of them do because they don't know what's on the other side. We do. We know what's on the other side. Some would say, well, how can you be sure? Well, because we have the word. Well, how do you know that that's true? Because it's prophetic. That's how we know. That's how the, the thread goes through that. And everything that took place in the past was prophecy, whether it be Nebuchadnezzar and the media Persian Empire and Greece and Rome and all of that. It's all taken place. But we know in the future, there's going to be a revived Roman Empire that's going to come up. And that's in the future. Why should we believe that? Because the other ones all came true. That's why the naysayers come along and say, like Daniel, where this is listed, they say, Daniel obviously had to be written after this and they just predated it. No, it's God knows the future and he writes it like it's already happened. He writes it like in past tense. Where are we seated? We're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Really? I thought I was right here. He sees the future as if it has already happened. Why did God create time? So everything doesn't happen all at once. For him it does. He exists in all of it. That's why he says, I am not, I was, or I will be. He says, I am. And he just, he's there. That's why God told Moses, tell them, I am has sent you. 
And so he exists all the time. We don't have to worry about this past and present and future and all of that. God is there. He knows exactly what's going on. So he makes an appeal here, Paul does, going back to him, in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. Now you see how it is not, I'm astonished. He doesn't say that. He says, I appeal to you. It's an admonition. Now, this is not a rebuke. This is not something where he's putting down the thumb and and just reprimanding them. He's admonishing them. Kind of like as we have children. Now, sometimes you have to rebuke your kids. You know, they just did something like that little toddler on the um, quintuplets, you know, that smack. And you, you have to rebuke them, put them in the timeout chair, whatever you have to do. But other times, you, you, like for instance, we're, we're getting an experience. I'm teaching my granddaughter to drive. It's one, the last thing you want to do is go, don't, don't, you know, you, you don't want to do that because all of a sudden there, an accident might happen. And so you say, now this is what I want you to do. I want you to slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. That, you see, it, it's like, It's like an admonishment. It's not a reprimand. It's not a rebuke. And so that's how he's looking at the church in Corinth here. So he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions amongst you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So if there is division, that is disunity. Now, it can be about anything. If you get together in churches, you know, there's usually, if you have a project to go do, there's usually somebody in charge. You need somebody in charge. And in the past when we've, and there was one time I wasn't able to go and I was scheduled to go and my wife had uh, cancer surgery at that time, so I needed to stay back. And when I stayed back, the person that went wasn't really a leader uh, that was supposed to be taking care of it. And it kind of, wavered you know kind of went by the wayside and so people they need direction and if there is no direction there's going to be disunity and if there's disunity there's going to be division and pretty soon you'll get well today you would get a text like it's not going so well you know and and that's how we would communicate today we don't send a snail mail anymore we we simply text it out or leave a a voicemail or we go over email to let people know what's going on but there's definitely some division going on now in this group of believers here there's always division as far as doctrine is concerned now if i were to say uh you know i've been doing the research and now i hold to the doctrine of purgatory how would you guys receive that? Yeah, there, there would be, I'm astonished, is what you would say. And you would be a little taken back. Like, how can you do something like that? That's not what we believe. We're protesters. We don't go, Protestants, we don't go with what the Catholic Church says on this idea of purgatory and other scriptures and doctrines like that. If I, if I changed it, there would be disunity. Now, we have disunity on certain non-essential doctrines. Ever since the church has uh, been underway, there have been people, as far as eschatology is concerned, that don't believe in the rapture, the millennial reign of Christ. And that's okay. They're, they're entitled to be wrong if they want to. But if they, if they, don't, 
If they don't believe that, that is fine. We still have fellowship. It's not something we're going to go to the mattresses for, if you know what that reference is for. We, we don't go to the mats uh, like in a wrestling match and wrestle over it like Jacob did with God. We don't wrestle like that. We just say, okay, well, if that's what you want to hold to, that's okay. I don't agree with that, but it's okay. And we can still have the fellowship uh, that takes place. And, and this is barring that is actual outright sin. If it's actual outright sin and somebody says, no, this is okay, I can do this. And you're saying, ah, no, right here in First Corinthians it says you're not supposed to be doing that. And if you do that, you're deceiving yourself and you're not even saved. That's what First Corinthians 6, 9 says about some subjects. And so if there's stuff like that, then you have to deal with that. It's not that you just say, oh, well, we'll just get along and love each other, okay? That, no, that's not what God said to do inside the church. And so these divisions come up when there is disunity, especially disunity on doctrine. That's why there's so many different churches. And I, I don't have a problem with all the different churches. I, I wish they were all Calvary Chapel, but it doesn't matter to me that they're not. God knows what he's doing. He, he knows that there's the Catholic Church, the Presbyterian Church, the you name the church, the Baptist Church, which is out there, all the denominations. It's all fine. It's all good. God knows who's in error, who's not in error, who's right, who's wrong. But that's why, like the Baptists, why did the Baptists start? Because they wanted full immersion. They get them dunked, you know, take them down. And so that's what the Baptists did. And the Catholics said, no, sprinkling is fine. We can do that. And so there was a separation over sprinkling or dunking. And that's just one of the things that took place. But you see what I mean, this disunity. So we want to make every effort to be in the unity of the Spirit. And doctrinally, how do we do that? We get into the Word. We don't just make things up. I think I told you once when I started uh, at that time, it was called Root Development, our basic foundations class. I took a survey of the people that were there. There were 35 people there. And 30% of them believe we become angels when we die. And, of course, we corrected that. We went to the scriptures. No, angels are different than us. Uh, Even Jesus was created in his human form a little lower than the angels. We know that in Hebrews chapter 1. And so there is going to be some doctrinal difference. But if it's a crucial doctrine we're going to divide over the crucial doctrines. Like, for instance, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, his ultimate second return. Those types of things, those are non-negotiables. If somebody doesn't believe in those things, well, you best fellowship somewhere else because we're never going to agree on something that is so vital. That's not what was going on in Corinth Corinth was open. Even though they were infants, they were open to what the Apostle Paul had to say. And he delivered to them the instruction. And so as we continue, there ended up being a problem with baptism. Who baptized you? Now, when I got baptized, I remember going down to uh, Mission Bay. And I think it was at Crown Point. And it was with Calvary Chapel San Diego and Mike McIntosh. And Mike was baptizing out there. And so were some of the elders. And you look at the line waiting for Mike. And it was just, it just went on. You know, it's like, okay, all those people want to be baptized with Mike. And then there's three or four elders out there. It's like, okay, 
You. And, and I went out. I didn't want, like, I didn't want to have to say, I was baptized by Mike. Who were you baptized with? It's a, it doesn't make a difference who baptizes who. Well, it should be somebody who's spiritually mature that is baptizing somebody, and they make sure the person understands what they're doing. At least that much should take place. But it doesn't matter who baptizes. Now, we're going to see this here. It says in verse 11, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you say, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, well, I follow Christ. (laughs) Forget about those people. I follow God. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And so there was this disunity because they were looking at somebody more spiritual, and because they were more spiritual, I am therefore more spiritual than you who got baptized by that guy who's a low not a low life, but you know, he's not up to the standard of the Apostle Paul. And so there was this division going on. You know, take, for instance, take the women's ministry. Now, my wife and Sandy, they talk a lot. That's good. That's wonderful. And Patty will come to me and say, what do you think about this? And I'll say, well, this is what I think about that. And Patty goes and talks to Sandy. And Sandy says, what do you think about that? And Sandy comes up to me and she asks me questions as well. You know, so it's kind of good. We go between ourselves. But then you have Sarah and you have Cheryl and they're all teaching. But what if you just took the women all by themselves? And the women were teaching. And some women come up and say, well, you know, I really like Cheryl, not as much as Sandy. And another one says, well, I like Sarah, but not as much as Cheryl. And some others come up and say, well, why isn't Patty teaching? But Sandy, she's good. You know, and, and they just go through the, well, you know, I'm not going to go to that one because I just don't like what they do. And all of a sudden you have the Sandy's. Cheryl's, but I'm of Patty. And then, you know, you, you have that going on. Is there division inside the church? Of course there would be division inside the church. They're more spiritual. You know, they're older in the Lord. They have more information. And, and that's what was happening with Paul, Cephas, Peter, Apollos. But, but I'm of Christ. Well, and did he baptize you? No, I don't think so. So, and Apollos, by the way, the guy was a brainiac. He was really good. He was a Christian Jew. He has this Greek name, apparently. But he, he was able to make a defense for Christ. Now, some say he was a Gentile, but I'll have to go back and research that later. I'm just doing that off the top of my head, which is a really dangerous thing to do. So, anyhow, Apollos was really good. He can make a good defense for the faith. And as he would go out, people would gravitate to him because he was such a good speaker. They they would just hang on his every word. But you know, the Apostle Paul, short guy, balding, not much really as far as a speaker to be impressed with. What's wrong with that? Bald, short. You know, I I don't see anything wrong with that whatsoever. (laughs) He could be a real spiritual giant compared to Apollos, which he was an apostle. And and so you have this division that is going on and people were ranking others that they thought were more spiritual. And Paul makes the case, look, 
everyone's equal and we're all under Christ. That's the way it is. And everybody has their own separate ministry. And he goes on in verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is for us who are saved. It is the power of God. And he's, he's referring back to this division. This division not, not to be here. This is what takes place in the world. The world does this. The world ranks people by their importance and who they think is really important and who is really successful. And, and God's economy, they could be the biggest wreck on the face of the earth. You know, like, for instance, who is on track to be the richest man in the world? Not Bezos. Elon is on track to become the richest man in the world. As he gets on his little blog, puffing the reefer madness, saying stuff that is just, let me be gracious, stupid. I mean, it's just stupid stuff he's saying. But he's a billionaire. And so... The world would say, oh, he's so successful. He's to be looked up to. He has the biggest yacht in the world, and he has rockets and stuff like that. Well, it doesn't make a difference. I'll take a wise, lowly, poor person any day over somebody who is rich and famous and does not have God. That's what we need to gravitate towards. And there is no division amongst us. We should have that same view of everybody. So that's why he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Do you guys know who Sam Harris is? Sam Harris is one of the new atheists which are out there. This is what he says about faith. It is time that we admitted that faith is nothing more than the license Religious people give one another to keep believing when reason fails. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a poke in the eye to anybody who is a believer. There's some other ones. Do you know who Bill Mayer is? Politically incorrect. Faith means the purposeful suspension of critical thinking. It's nothing to be admired. Obviously, he doesn't think critically because there's so much evidence for Christ. Uh, here's, he, you might know this guy, Jesse Ventura. You know, he, he is that icon of wisdom. It says here, by the way, he was a wrestler who became the governor of Minnesota cold, right? Up there. Organized, this is what he said, organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. It tells people to go out and stick their noses in other people's business. Actually, he's probably had a bad run-in with somebody who was a believer. Uh, you remember this guy? He's the guy who started CNN. Yeah. I was going to say Christian News Network, but that's far from the case. <clears throat> Anyhow, this is what he said, Ted Turner. Christianity is a religion for losers. That's right. We're losing our lives for Christ is what we're doing. And I'm going back a little bit here. George Carlin. Yeah, he was a pretty rough character. It says, It is my opinion that at the base of most of the evil in the world is religion of any kind. Had he not met Mao, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler... 
you know, all these guys, they were probably all demon-possessed, every one of them. And how many millions and millions of people did they kill? And they always refer back to the Crusades. The Crusades were nothing, just a drop in the bucket. And we only went after hundreds of years of complaining as Christians, the Catholic Church. They only went because the Christians needed help. They were being destroyed by the Muslims, which were there. And they only stuck it out for about 300 years. These crusades have been going on for 1,400 years. They're still going on, by the way. And so the, the world looks at what they think is wisdom, and they lack it completely. That's why God says the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And that's what these people have said. And I, I gave you the books, I think, last week, and the authors, Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell, Case for Christ and Faith, Lee Strobel. Those guys started out trying to disprove the Bible and they thought about it critically and honestly and they became believers. Verse 19 says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? You know, I, I went through a little section of uh, evolution versus creation with the youth. And then the youth, are you guys familiar with that little diagram they have? It starts from a, a small primate, an ape, a, almost bipedal, you know, walking on two feet. And it goes up and then you have us today. You know, so it goes through all these different apes. Like, for instance, the Piltdown Man is the most famous scientific fraud of the last hundred years. In 1912, it was announced. And by the way, that's one of the guys in that line. Uh, it was announced that the skull and jaw of the pre-human had been found in Britain. Similar fragments were found nearby in 1913 and 1915 by the same people. Well, in 1953, chemical tests proved that the fossils were frauds. Someone had taken a slightly old modern human skull and the jaw of an orangutan. They had been stained, filed, smashed, and so on in a fairly clever way. They're making it up because they don't have the evidence. And by the way, there's not only Piltdown Man, but Nebraska Man that was taken from a, a tooth of an extinct pig, and they said that was from a human. A, a tooth! It's human! You know, it's a monkey! They, they don't even know, and they look it up. It's like the foolishness of the world. And when it ex is exposed, shh, don't say anything. We don't want anybody to know it's a lie. And that's what they do. They make it a lie. The foolishness of the world. Yeah, I'm not going to read them, but I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different hominids that, that go up from the bipedal monkey all the way to the human being. The last one is a homo sapien sapien. That's what we are. And of course, before that, there was a homo erectus, homo habilis, and all these different guys. And they just made them up is what they did. They got some bones, put them together as a puzzle, said, look what we found. No, I don't think so. Verse 21 says, For since the wisdom of God, excuse me, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block for Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block for Jews because they were responsible for crucifying Jesus. For the Gentiles, they look at it like, right, somebody rose from the dead, walked around, and then went to heaven. 
uh-huh, sure. It's so hard to believe, you know, if somebody says that, unless you have some verifiable facts that are there. Of course, we do. Verse 24, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, the foolishness for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. So he's putting the wisdom of the world in perspective. It doesn't even rate. It doesn't even come up to the bottom of God's wisdom. The bottom of God's wisdom is heaven. Heaven is as far as it is above the earth. That's how high God's wisdom is. And so we see that there is these divisions in there. And it all starts out with differing views and who's great and who's not great. But you know, if you had to give one word to the division, how it starts, it would be criticism. I don't like. I think that it ought to be done this way. You know, uh, when I was at Calvary Chapel, San Diego, Mike McIntosh was there. He decided he was going to go the world and be a world evangelist, and Ray Bentley came in. And when Ray Bentley came in, he started, and I'm going, not doing it for me. Uh Uh-uh. No, not so good. And I told that to the person who was discipling me. I said, you know, I just, I don't get anything out of this guy. I don't know who he is or what he's doing. And the guy who was discipling me came along. His name is Jeff. He said, just sit and listen to what he says. Don't judge anything up. Don't judge him. Don't, don't do any of that. Just listen to what he says. And he told me every time he sits down, he gets a nugget of wisdom from this guy. And I said, Okay, I'll give it a shot. And I started doing that. I started sitting down and just listening to what he was expressing. And I walked away going, this man is a genius. He is so smart. I, it's unbelievable how much he knows and the insights he has. It's because I was always looking at the outside. And God wants us to look on the inside. And, you know, Sunday's... It used to be that you would go home on Sunday and you have a meal. And I, I, it's always been the case with every church that people go home, they have a meal, and sometimes they have roast pastor. And it, that's just the way it works, you know, and, and there's critical. And then other people go home and they have roast Christian. They don't criticize the pastor, but they criticize the other people. And I've given you this before. Ephesians 4.29. Now, when I say it, some of you are going to be able to repeat it. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So we should never have a critical attitude towards somebody who is working or following Christ, working for Christ or following him, because God called that person too, just like Paul said. He called Apollos. He called Cephas. He he called everyone into salvation. And who are we to question or criticize another man's servant? They're the servant of Christ. And so we are always to lift up and be beneficial in our speech. And this one you guys should have memorized backwards and forwards. Philippians 2.14. Because we're all guilty, even me. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Uh, Just a final note on that. 
I'm working this job in Alpine, and these guys from ECTLC, they're coming over, and they, they're unskilled workers, and I showed them how to finish grade a big bank. And you've got to move a lot of dirt, and it's a lot of shoveling and everything else. You know, it's sweat and the, the sun, and it's up and down and falling down and slipping. I mean, it's a hard job. It's a hard job. And yards and yards and yards have to be moved by hand. And so I show up, and they go, hey, Bill! And goes, hey, guys, how's it going? Well, you know. I said, remember, Philippians 2.14. They go, what's that? And I said, do everything without complaining or arguing. And they go, well, we failed miserably at that. You know, they, they just couldn't do it. And, and they finally got it, what it's supposed to be. And they're all believers. They're just very, very young in the Lord. They haven't had the experience. And so that's what we want to walk away with. Don't be critical. Don't be criticizing. Find a way to be unified in the faith. And if you look at somebody that you don't exactly agree with, you don't have to force yourself to love them. Love them is an action. It's a choice, right? That's what we're supposed to do. And if we have that attitude, God will bless our efforts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and how it directs us. We thank you for the church in Corinth, all the mistakes that they had under their belt that they were practicing regularly. Help us to learn from that and make corrections in our own lives, not looking at them in a critical fashion like, oh, they were so immature. Father, help us to be a blessing to all who are around us, that we would not criticize in a negative way, never look at, uh, never look at anybody down on them, Lord, but always lift all these people up, all the believers in Christ, workers, f- fellowshippers, disciples, everyone, Lord, help us to lift them up in the eyes of others, never having a cross word. And with your help, Lord, we'll do this in Jesus' name. Amen.